peace be with you, church. I invite you to open up your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke. We are in the last chapter, and we'll be reading our final verses of this Gospel. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, beginning in verse 36 through verse 53. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them, And he said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. But he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they were, and and while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a a piece of broiled fish, and he took it. And ate before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer. And on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple, blessing God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We, uh, Lord, thank you for your kindness to us through Jesus Christ, Lord. We ask, Father, that as we open up scriptures, as we look at the words of Jesus, you would open up our hearts, our minds, our spiritual eyes to see the beauty of Christ, Lord, to understand your word. We know that it is you and you alone, Father, who is able to do that through your spirit. And Father, I just pray that as I preach that anything that is worthless would fall to the ground, but may your word go forward and bear much fruit. We pray this in Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen. Amen. Uh, Children, you are dismissed to your Sunday schools. Your teachers are in the back uh, waiting for you to take you to your classrooms. Today in our text... Luke finishes the account of Jesus' life and his ministry. In these final verses, we see 
the final appearance of Jesus to the 11 disciples. Uh, we also see Luke's version of the Great Commission. And finally, Jesus' ascension. Over the last few weeks, we saw how Jesus' friends and his disciples, how they reacted to the news of Jesus' resurrection. And if we can summarize their reaction, it would be one word, disbelief. It was perpetual unbelief. They could not believe the news that Christ has risen. And part of the reason why they struggled with unbelief is the fact that they put their faith in their own version of Jesus. They had their own expectations of who Jesus will be and what Jesus will do, rather than placing their faith in what Christ has told them will happen. And as we have heard many times, uh, they, they never expected, the disciples never expected Jesus to fall into the hands of his enemies. It came as a surprise to them. The disciples were convinced that Jesus will become king, he will destroy Rome, he will make Israel great, and all of them will rule with Christ happily ever after. No more problems, no more issues, um, everything's going to be great. And then came the arrest, and then came the crucifixion, and all of their hopes and dreams in the Jesus that they've created for themselves crashed and burned. They think Jesus failed them. They did not understand that Jesus was doing something far better and greater than they ever wanted or expected. How often are we just like the disciples we have our own expectations of what Jesus will do, or worse yet, we have our own version of who Jesus is. And often when our expectations of Christ fail, we may say, Jesus failed me. That God thing did not work. It failed. It crashed and burnt when in fact it was not Jesus who failed us, it was a Jesus of our imagination, our own version of Christ. This is why when we gather together, we pray, we ask, Father, open up our spiritual eyes. Help us to believe. Open our minds to understand, ears to hear, give us faith to believe in the Christ, in the Jesus that you are displaying and showing through your word. Crush the ideas about yourself that are not true, and may they be replaced with the word of God. We pray that as we open up the word of God, because the disciples kept on hearing from Jesus what will happen. They've ignored all of it, they had their own expectations. And then it all failed, and they find themselves, they find themselves in a room in fear, locked up. 
Sunday comes, and they begin to hear the news first from the women uh, of these appearances, strange appearances. Angels appeared and said that Jesus resurrected. They've dismissed all of that as a tale. Then they saw an empty tomb. Then they hear these two witnesses coming from Emmaus. They came back to Jerusalem, and they are telling the eleven what has happened, that they saw Jesus. And in our text we read, as they're trying to make sense of all of this, as they're sitting there locked in the room, verse 36, as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. I just want to underline the significance of Jesus' greeting. He tells them, peace to you. The disciples' situation is anything but peaceful. They are discouraged. They are hopeless. They feel like cowards. They abandoned Christ and ran to hide. They betrayed Jesus, denied Jesus. They are filled with unbelief. They are thinking, how should they continue life? They have left their work to follow Jesus. What do they do now? Their situation is anything but peaceful. There is no peace in their hearts. And Jesus appears in the midst of them, in the midst of their trouble. And he tells them, peace be with you. Does Jesus really mean what he is saying? Is it really possible for these men to have peace? And of course, Jesus would not greet them with these words if it were not possible. Consider from whom this greeting is coming. This is the day, this is Sunday, still Sunday evening probably. Jesus resurrected earlier in this day. He just defeated humanity's And these men's, these 11 disciples' worst enemies, he defeated sin and death. He redeemed them to God through his blood. Jesus made peace between them and the Father. They have peace with the Father. These are not empty words. These guys are sad that their pipe dream got shattered not realizing Jesus has accomplished for them something infinitely better. He made peace between them and the Father. As we celebrate, begin to celebrate Christmas, one of the things that we're going to be reminded of is that Christ is the Prince of Peace, and he is the Prince of Peace because of the work that he has accomplished on our behalf, making peace with humanity and God. And it is this Prince of Peace who appears to them, the one who has authority to give peace, and he brings them this peace. Church in Christ, no matter what is going on, the default state of God's people must be peace. Even if life gives us the worst, like it did for these disciples, God still comes and tells his children, peace be with you. 
This is why you hear these words every Sunday from me or others as we greet you. Peace be with you. We're just representatives of what Christ is telling you as you gather to worship him. We come into this place bruised, discouraged, maybe busy, chaotic lives, hard days of responsibilities, waging war for our children, for our families, against our sin, and some of the most greatest words we can hear, the most encouraging words we can hear is to be greeted by our Father, peace be with you. These words are not empty. These are the greatest words our weary and forgetful souls must hear. To receive this peace is to trust in the goodness and the kindness of the sovereign God who already took care of our greatest problem. Our sin and death, he made peace with us. He forgave us. He justified us. Any problem we bring here is nothing compared to what Christ has already accomplished for us. The one who tells us, peace be with you, is a God who knows what tomorrow will bring. He is a God who does not allow an ounce of evil or suffering to enter into our lives without his consent. When we hear the words, peace be with you, it's a call to remember our standing before God and to rest in the fact that the one who is telling us these words is sovereign. He has power, and he is incredibly kind to his children. And so Jesus greets his friends with these amazing words as they are in the midst of the most troubling time in their life. The second amazing thing we see in our text is Jesus' ability to do something uh, just that just breaks the laws of physics. We read in verse 36, as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought that they saw a spirit. The word spirit can be translated as ghost. Uh, some of your translations may be, say, ghost. Uh, in the Gospel of John, we read in John uh, John 20, verse 19, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for the fear of Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. Notice the detail. The doors are locked. And Jesus does not enter into the room through the doors. He just appears before them. Walking through the wall or through the door, however he did it, he just appeared before them. We see a similar thing happening earlier in uh, Luke chapter 24 and verse 30. When he was in Emmaus, when he was at a table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were open and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. 
we see that the resurrected Jesus had this ability to appear and disappear. Jesus' body is the same yet different. It's the same because, as we know, the tomb is empty. It's the body that has died on the cross. It is now alive. We see that his body still has scars, yet the same body, it is different. It is now glorified. It is upgraded. Version 2.0, if we may call it. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, that Christ is the first fruit, that what happened to Jesus will happen to us. We will also receive glorified, resurrected bodies. I don't know if we're going to be able to do what Jesus is doing here, but we'll see. We'll see. When we see that Jesus' body here is not limited by physics, this is why he can appear and disappear. And so his sudden appearance in front of them as they are locked up in the room, is probably part of the reason that they think he is a ghost. They were startled and frightened and thought that they saw a spirit. This is actually not the first time the disciples thought that Jesus was a ghost. In Matthew 14, we have a story of Jesus walking on water towards his disciples, and we read how they reacted when they saw Jesus. In Matthew 14, 26, we read, but when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. I don't know what people believed about the paranormal, at that time, but clearly they believed in ghosts. Every time they see Jesus appear, they think he's a ghost. Jesus reassures them that this is really him, that he's resurrected and in a physical body. He says in verse 38, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts arise in your heart? See my hands, my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. Fun little side note for those of you looking for biblical proof on the existence of ghosts. This is the clo- as, as closest as you're going to get. Jesus does not tell them, you silly disciples, ghosts don't exist. He actually defines what is a ghost. He says, a spirit does not have flesh or bones. That would be a ghost. But I do. Jesus distanced himself from the possibility of being a ghost. He reassures them and he calls them to touch him, feel that this is actually physical flesh. And so we read that the disciples, they marveled. They are in joyful disbelief. Again, this is Sunday, the day of the resurrection. This has been an eventful day for them. Early morning, they received news from the women that Jesus is resurrected. Some of these disciples went and saw the empty tomb. They heard of the angel's testimony. 
They just heard the story of Jesus' appearance to the two witnesses from Emmaus. And as they are trying to comprehend all this process, what, what happened today? Finally, Jesus appears to them personally, giving peace to their troubled hearts. He comes to restore them. He comes to build them up. He comes to encourage them. If we go back to the disciples' failed expectations of who Jesus is and what he will do, this time is a very awkward time for them. The question that they face is, what now? Remember, for them, the arrest and the crucifixion of Jesus was the most tragic event. Even at this moment, they can't understand why Jesus had to die. They, they, they just can't see any good in it. They don't know yet what Jesus has accomplished through his death and resurrection. Even as Jesus appears to them, they are oblivious to all of the glorious truths of the gospel that we are so familiar with. It's all a tragedy for them. They can't give us, at this point, if you ask the disciples, they can't give us a single reason why Jesus' death is good. And so even the resurrection is confusing to them. The question is, okay, now what? It's this awkward middle. The Jesus that they put their hope in is no more. And they still do not understand the true purpose of the cross. They're in between these two places. And during the 40 days between Jesus' resurrection and ascension, what Jesus will do is build them up. He will instruct them. He will show them the true meaning of his suffering, of his death, of his resurrection. He will prepare them for the mission that he has for them. And that is exactly what we see happening in our verses, verse 44 through 49. Jesus begins to show them that what he has done his death and resurrection is better than anything that they have imagined or expected. The past two weeks, we saw how every time the resurrection is announced, whether it is by the angels or by Jesus himself, the angels and Jesus pointed to Scripture and said, these events are the fulfillment of the prophetic word of God. When the angels appeared to the women, they said, Luke 24, verse 6, He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he told you that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. When Jesus appeared to the two walking uh, to Emmaus, Luke 24, 26, he tells them, Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. 
And Jesus finally appears to the disciples. And what does he do? The exact same thing. He takes them to scriptures. Verse 44, then he said to them, These are my words that I've spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus, is, thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. Here's how Jesus gets his disciples out of the rut and the disappointment that they are in. He takes them to scriptures. He takes them to the word of God. As the disciples are struggling with the death and the resurrection of Jesus, Jesus shows them through the word that what he just experienced, his arrest, his death, this is not a failure of a plan like they think, but that his death is and was the actual plan. It was always this way. Jesus is rebuilding these, these men by anchoring them in Scripture, showing them that this was God's plan to redeem humanity from sin from the very beginning, beginning from the law of Moses, beginning from Genesis. And going through the prophets and the Psalms, Jesus shows them through the word how this was always the plan, that he is the sacrificial lamb prepared before the foundations of the world to redeem us from our sin. And Jesus does something amazing. We read that he opens up their minds to see all this. He opens up their minds to understand the scriptures. He gives them the ability to see that all of God's word is about Jesus. And that is what Jesus did. He did what the plan was from the very beginning. Christ gives them the ability to see that. And we see that through the, uh, through the epistles. As we read Paul, as we read Peter, as we read James and John, uh, we see that they root everything. They, they anchor everything in the Old Testament, in the Word of God, and they show us how scriptures have been fulfilled in Christ. Listen, church, when we, when you have a problem with the Word of God, when you don't understand something in scriptures, when you read and you come across something that you disagree with, you have a hard time with it, never ever think that the problem is with God's word. Never ever permit yourself to think that God is wrong. Always think and always know that the problem is with you. It is your lack of understanding his word. The problem is never scriptures. As Christians, we must not have problem passages. We must not have any passages in scriptures that we have a problem with. You know, we're going to avoid them. We're going to explain them away. Christians should not have problem passages. If we have a problem with it, 
it is not the word of God that's at fault. It is us. And here's the hope that we have. Just like Christ opened up the minds of the disciples to understand scriptures, we too are able to understand the mind of Christ. We have hope. We can pray for God to open up our minds to understand his word, and he is able to give us the understanding like he did to these disciples. And so as Jesus gives them understanding of what is going on, the disciples, you can just imagine them, they're probably having this paradigm shift. They're seeing everything in new light as Christ reveals to them what scriptures is all about. He also answers the question of what now? What are the disciples to do now? We read that he gives them a mission. It's famously known as the Great Commission. In it, Jesus defines the purpose and the job of the disciples and the church. This applies to us today. Most of us are familiar with the Great Commission found in Matthew 28. In Matthew 28, 18, we read, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The Great Commission is actually found in all four of the Gospels, and it's also found in Acts chapter 1. Uh, Jesus repeated this great mission, this great commission to the disciples on multiple occasions. He didn't just uh, say it here in, in this room as they're uh, locked away. He told them this on multiple occasions over the, over the days that he, uh, between his resurrection and ascension. In Mark chapter 16, we read Mark's, uh, the Great Commission found in Mark, and he said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. In John, we find the shortest version of the Great Commission. It's found in John 20, 21. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. This is in that room where they were locked up. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. It's the commission. He's sending them out. And in verses 46 and 48 of our text, we have the great commission found in Luke. And he said to them, Thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in, the name, in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. When we look at the Great Commission in Matthew, we see four elements. Go. Disciple, baptize, and teach the nations. 
when we look at Mark, the emphasis is go into all the world and proclaim the gospel. The gospel meaning go and proclaim good news. Go tell everybody. Go tell all the nations, all of creation, the good news. When we look at the Great Commission in Luke, here Jesus gives us the content of that gospel proclamation. He gives us what it entails. He gives us details of what that good news looks like. Listen to what Jesus, uh, to what Jesus commissions the disciples to proclaim to all the world. That the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. So in Mark, we have go proclaim the good news. And in Luke, we see the actual good news, what it entails. And what's interesting is that the very thing that the disciples are struggling with, to them, it's the horrible news of Jesus' suffering and death This becomes the very news that Jesus says, go declare to the whole world. This is the good news. Jesus tells them, go and tell all the nations that I've died and that I've resurrected and that in me you have repentance and forgiveness of sin. And here's how Jesus summarizes his work. He sums up what he has done for humanity. Repentance for the forgiveness of sin. That's Jesus' five-word summary of the gospel. Repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. There's so much to unpack in this statement. We're not going to get too much of it. But imagine the world, very much pagan. They've never heard of Christ. Much of the world has never heard the name of Jesus. And so these disciples, these 12 men, are commissioned to go, all, to go into these nations and to preach Christ. And this is the news. As we look at As we look at the the entirety of Luke's gospel, what Jesus said about himself, what he came to do, and what he has done, this is the news. Humanity, your king is not Satan. The rightful king has come. And through his life, And through his death and through his resurrection, he has reclaimed what is rightfully his. His victory over sin, his victory over death and over Satan means that the curse of the first Adam has been undone. The kingdom of God has arrived and so the yoke of Satan can now be thrown off. The kingdom of light is here, and so the kingdom of darkness no longer has power over you. Humanity can now be forgiven of sin, 
and it can be at peace with God. And here is how you come into the kingdom of God and receive forgiveness. It is through repentance. Today, repentance, the word repent has become a scary word. Repentance in Greek, metanoia, it simply means change of mind. When we read the word repent, it means change your mind. Proclaim change of mind for the forgiveness of sin. And so the question is, what do we change our minds about? What should those who hear the gospel change their mind about? The gospel is also a declaration that Jesus is Lord. He is creator. He is king over all. And the king is beckoning and calling all of his creation back to himself. And so change of mind is an acknowledgement that the way you have lived, worshiping yourself, worshiping false gods, living in your sin, living to please yourself, is wrong. That is evil. It is living against your creator. But change of mind is more than just acknowledgement of sin. It means that you now will turn away from that sin. You will no longer partake in the passions of your flesh. But you will now live for this king. To preach repentance also means defining what is sin. It is defining what is evil and wrong. To, re to preach repentance is to clarify and make clear to the world what they need to repent from. And the world hates that message. This is why we read in Mark, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned because there will be many who will reject the gospel. Our world is working hard against the gospel. As we preach repentance, as we define what is sin, the, works, the world works the other way. It is attempting, Satan is attempting to silence the guilt of sin. Our world is celebrating sin instead of repenting from it. Our world is trying to say that sin and evil and living for yourself is not wrong. It is the greatest good. That is the message that we hear from Hollywood, from Disney, from politics, from, from every aspect of our culture. The message is live for yourself. You are God. And it is completely opposed to the gospel that Jesus is Lord, and you must live for him. Uh, last week, Apologia released, uh, uh, it's like a short documentary on abortion. And the point that they're making in that video is how 
the pro-life establishment in our country is working hard to make sure that um, abolition of abortion does not happen. Um, they will allow, they will go into courts and they will allow uh, laws against doctors to perform abortion, but they will never ever say that the woman who is actually performing the abortion is guilty. And so they are actually the greatest, the greatest enemy of banning full-on abortion, abolishing abortion in our country. It's the pro-life establishment. And so we see uh, this, this, this war against what sin is, redefining sin, making it good, pardoning the guilty without repentance happening in our country as even we today continue to fight for justice for the unborn. And this is just one of the examples of how Satan tries to make evil good. To be forgiven, you must repent. There is no forgiveness without repentance. You cannot say you are forgiven and continue to live in sin. And so to define sin and to call people to repent is one of the most glorious things the church can do. Because when we repent, we are forgiven. It's the only path to forgiveness is to believe in the Lord Jesus and to repent. It is to change our mind about sin. It is not to justify it, excuse it, but to call evil, evil, and repent of it. And here's how darkness has a foothold on humanity, unrepentant sin. That is how Satan has a hold on our hearts when we walk in our sin and we do not repent. That is the hold that Satan has on our neighbors and our community and when we repent and when we are forgiven, when the blood of Jesus washes us and we become children of God, Satan has no power. The chains of sin are destroyed. The kingdom of darkness is destroyed. This is why Jesus summarizes the gospel, the good news, as repentance for the forgiveness of sin. The king has come, proclaimed to all the world, Turn away from your false gods. Turn away from worshiping yourself. Worship God. Turn away from your sin and you will be forgiven. It's the greatest news humanity can hear. He promises forgiveness to those who repent. What a great joy and privilege it is to be forgiven by the God of the universe. The God who knows you better than you know yourself. The God who knows every evil thought that you've had, every evil action that you've done. And this God pardons and forgives you. What a great joy that is. As Jesus takes his disciples to Bethany. He takes them there, having finished all he came to do. 
He lived a life we could not live. He died a death we deserved, paying the penalty for our sin. He resurrected victoriously, defeating sin and death, having given the disciples the mission and having instructed them to wait for the promised Holy Spirit who will come and clothe them with power so that they could be able to go and proclaim this great news to all the nations. Jesus brings them to the mountain, and we read in verse 50, and he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. And so we see in a few short verses, they go from being locked up in a room to the most public place in Jerusalem, the temple. They are no longer afraid. The apostles' trouble, unbelief, discouragement, and fear turned into joy. It turned into blessing. It turned into worship as they are publicly, continually blessing God in the temple. And Christ, he ascended into the heavens as our representative, as our high priest. He ascended in the flesh. There was no room for humanity there. God becoming human ascended into heaven, creating a place for us. And as he came, the father tells him, Psalm 110.1, he says this to his son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And this is what is happening today, church. As the gospel is being proclaimed by the church, Christ's enemies are becoming his footstool. And to close, simply, I simply want to say, believe. Believe in Christ. May Christ be your Lord. Repent of your sin. Be forgiven. In Jesus' name, amen. Father, we thank you once again for your son, Jesus that you did not leave us dead in our trespasses and sin, but you sent your son into this world to live a life we could not live, to die a death we deserved, and resurrect victoriously, defeating all of our enemies so that we may have repentance and so that we may be forgiven and justified. Not an ounce of sin counted against us. Father, thank you for that. Lord, I pray that as your church, Lord, we would be filled with the knowledge of Christ, that we would be filled with worship as we hear these words from your scriptures. And for those who do not know you, Father, I pray that they would hear your serious and gracious call, that they would repent of their sin and be forgiven. 
Father, do that work among us. May your spirit be at work in our church, in our community. Lord, we pray that as your word is being proclaimed, that you would draw many to yourself, Father, and that you would do that even amongst ourselves. And Lord, as we prepare to partake of the Lord's Supper, to dine with you, we thank you for the promise that you are with us, that by faith you are at this table with us, Lord, encouraging us, reminding us of the forgiveness that we have received through your work on the cross. Lord, we pray that you would forgive us. Lord, this week we did not honor you. We sinned against our brother. We sinned against our neighbor. We've sinned against you, God. We pray for forgiveness, Lord. And we thank you for the promise that as we repent, you forgive us. You pardon us. You declare us righteous and just in your, in your name. We thank you, Father. In Christ's name we pray, amen.